Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. It is Sunday morning on WFAN, and good morning, everybody. This is Bob Solter. Hopefully, you have some nice plans on tap for today. This is World Pride Day. A huge day in New York City, and it's interesting. Here it is. It's a little after 7 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast here. And the sun, as I look out over lower Manhattan, is beaming literally through windows into the studio where we're broadcasting from this morning. So keep our fingers crossed because I believe there is a chance that there could be some precipitation later in the day. But hopefully the weather will be nice because there are going to be a lot of people out to watch the Pride March kicks off this afternoon uh, here in Manhattan. I believe the estimates are a million people will be on hand to watch that. It literally is an event in and of itself. And it's interesting that we have the guest who is joining us on our program today for a couple of reasons. He has a very interesting and accomplished background. His name is John Scagliotti. John is an American uh, film director, producer. He's also somebody who's worked in this wacky business of radio. He was the news and public affairs director at WBCN-FM in uh, Boston uh, back in the 1970s. And he is joining us on our program to talk with us also in his role where he's been a film director and producer. First of all, John, it's nice to have you join us. Good morning. Well, good morning, Bob. Well, you sound good and wide awake. I like this. Okay. You know, I am <laughs> wide awake. You know, I used to have a morning show on WBAI mm. that started at 6. I don't know. It was way back in the 80s. <laughs> so I'm used to this morning radio. I love it. There you go. Well, you, you get into it, um, and literally, even if there is a situation where you're the least bit tired, 
you will, just the adrenaline wakes you up, literally, as you're doing a show. That's one thing well, I've, there's I've so, always... There's so many exciting things happening in the world today. There uh, are. What a day it is. Uh, you know, three to four million people descending on New York City. Uh, and millions have been marching all month all over uh, the all over the world, uh, and marking the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, which you know is pretty amazing. It is amazing. You know, you think back. Here we are. This is 2019. Fifty years ago, literally, this day. There was a situation where, um, as an aftermath of um, what started off, I guess, as a, a raid at the Stonewall Inn in uh, Greenwich Village, developed into um, protests, riots that took place that really, in a way, gave birth to if I can phrase it that way, what has come to be known as the gay rights movement uh, in this country. I mean, is that a fair assessment of, of, of the impact, the legacy? Well, there were some very, very smart people and very organized people who, after this riot, actually took that opportunity to create a new way of thinking about the issues of gay and lesbian people. And they reorganized and started things like the Gay Liberation Front and the Gay Activist Alliance and these new organizations. And actually, the big event happened about a year later when they brought 20,000 people to Central Park in a march. And that began the real thinking that that created this event to be a such a major event. And it was these um, activists who figured it out and used the opportunity of the riots. Because, to be honest with you, a few people had heard about the riots, but it wasn't that big at the time. I mean, those of us who were gay, we had heard about it. It was a little bit of press. But it was these activists who took that opportunity and created this sort of kind of moment in history that really tied it all together. And from then came the modern-day gay movement, and it, it affected every institution we can think of, uh, especially here in America, but around the world. I mean, think of an institution where gay people haven't had some sort of effect where change took place, uh, whether universities, healthcare, government, uh, the military, Every institution, sort of from that moment on, had to deal with all these gay people who were demanding that they were coming out and, and change would happen. And so that was pretty amazing. Historically, back in the 1960s, what was the reality of life for someone who was gay and lesbian if they went to a place like the Stonewall Inn? Well, you know, it, it, it wasn't real pretty, but there is this kind of myth that, you know, gay people were hiding and were, in 
reality, in a lot of places around the country, in San Francisco, and mostly in the bigger cities, the port cities, where the ships had dropped tons of gay folks off after the war, these cities started developing rather strong gay communities. I mean, in, in the sense that people knew each other, they uh, started organizing. There were a lot of private parties, a lot of, you know, there was a there was a world. For most of us, though, who were living out in rural America, I happened to be living at the time in uh, New Hampshire, and uh, many of us never heard of this. So it was the putting those two things together uh, by creating Stonewall, it allowed people from all over. It was like the second big wave. Lots and lots of folks started moving to New York City, San Francisco, and other places to join in with the people who had already been there, uh, from mostly from World War II, um, where that first big wave happened. So it was like a second big wave. And it is true when those numbers started increasing, the tensions started increasing because the, these new people who were coming couldn't figure out why um, the police were giving us a hard time or or the the institutions that we were part of, whether, you know, our families. There, there's an institution that was really difficult at first. So, yes, a lot of a lot of negativity toward don't forget at that point almost everyone hated gay and lesbian people except in the theater and places like that around new york but (laughs) everywhere else people despised homosexuals so a lot of it was internalized so a lot of gay people felt really bad about themselves too so part of the change that took place was really personal in the sense where you started realizing just a simple term that, like Frank Kameny said, gay is good. And uh, one of the first big changes that took place is that everybody thought we were, you know, mentally ill. So the change in 1974, rather early in the game, uh, where the uh, where it was changed, where the psychiatric organization said no longer... Uh, would they have the category of homosexuality as being a mental illness? And that was a big, big change for people to understand that they were just like anybody else. And so, therefore, if they were just like anybody else, why are you making rules against us? Why are you uh, oppressing us? Why are you kicking us out of our jobs? All that stuff needed to be changed. And so, yeah, it was... it. It was difficult time, but people were coming together to do it, and that was pretty exciting to be part of that early, those early sort of gay liberationists who said, no, you know, this is wrong. And so uh, that dynamic, that dynamic of change made it seem much more hopeful. Mm-hmm. Talking with John Scagliotti, who is an American film director and producer. We're going to get into talking with him about um, this uh, documentary that originally was uh, done 
I believe back in the 80s, entitled Before Stonewall, The Making of a Gay and Lesbian Community. It's being re-released. Um, we can talk about that and some area, other areas of uh, discussion as well. Um, John is kind enough to be talking with us this hour of our program. Let me mention also, too, uh, that after our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. We have uh, actually Sweeney Murdy is in after uh, 9 this morning. And, yep, we're going to have some baseball. Baseball coming our way from England? Is that right? On on Sunday morning? Yep. It's a special program. You're not going to want to miss it right here on the fan. That'll happen now, we're going to continue in our discussion with John, get into uh, other areas of discussion. Um, I want to touch upon a number of different things. As I mentioned, this is a huge day here in New York City as World Pride Day. Radio.com. It is World Pride Day, of course, the... Um, March takes place, the big one, this afternoon here in uh, New York City. And uh, John is joining us on our program in his role. As I mentioned earlier, in his background where at one time he had worked in broadcasting, uh, in radio, but he has also worked as a film director and producer. Now, you get involved in working on documentaries about LGBT um, issues, and that included looks at uh, Stonewall. How did that come about? Well, you know, in nineteen in nineteen sixty uh, in the sixties, I was very much involved uh, as a young man in going to bars. Now, you, you know, it was interesting that you just mentioned uh, baseball. And baseball was a really important organizing element for the early gay and lesbian communities. The bars used to have baseball teams, the women and uh, the women bars and the uh, men bars. And these baseball teams were one of the first major sort of getting together for gay people to play uh, as a team against other teams and each other's. There were leagues. Um, and it, it really was an organizing tool, baseball, for the game. Because people had only been to bars and, you know, and that was it. But then all of a sudden there were, like, baseball games and other things. And so it, it was a fascinating kind of take on organizing for the gay community to see baseball happen. Well, in the film world, I was over at NYU um, going to film school, and I was the only gay person that I knew of in the in the class that I was at the graduate program and sort of it was that understanding uh, uh, that uh, there were so few people in film uh, that it seemed important I happened to speak to the folks at the corporation public broadcasting there had never been a gay or lesbian themed film on PBS and so all these things were first and by putting together you know, some really good analysis of why it was important to do this, uh, we were able to get some funding, and we went ahead and made the first uh, gay and lesbian, one of the first, uh, but first for PBS, 
a gay and lesbian films that was on public television called Before Stonewall. And this took this took in the early history, the 30s, the 40s of gay life. And, uh, and, and so it was pretty exciting. And a lot of people had never seen this around the nation. So this was the... Because, you know, gay people were hidden. And so this was like one of the first major visible... Uh, images that people were seeing for the first time. I used to get, uh, like, Barney Frank uh, called me up and said how important it was because, uh, you know, uh, just to see himself and others to be in, in, in films and see this image was really affirming for their lives. And so, uh, there, you know, one, we were telling the rest of the country that, gay and lesbian people existed and mostly though we're telling a lot of gay and lesbian people that they they weren't horrible that they that they were you know doctors and lawyers and uh, merchant marines and a lot of things so uh besides gay, they were doing all these other things and so that was kind of a big step uh and i think film was very important in organizing uh the LGBT community, as well as was baseball. Mm. Now, before Stonewall, and then what is after Stonewall? After Stonewall is a film that just takes off right after the riots. <laughs> so before Stonewall is all that led to the riots. After Stonewall is this, which I was talking about, was this major thing that took place uh, you know the the riots were pretty big but the but that organizing that took place in every in the entertainment world in the uh medical world in the universities huge amount of changes started taking place and after stonewall kind of chronicles all those changes that affected the institutions. I like to say, well, we changed the world. In many ways, we did, because every institution uh, was changed by this large gay and lesbian group uh, that started coming out, whether it was at universities, at uh, in media, you know, um, uh, and, uh, like, like us in film and PBS, but all over... Um, the institutions of America, something was happening between the 70s and 80s, and especially in the 90s, that would never, that, that would change forever the way we see the world. And you know, John, you think of the generations who are with us now, relatively young, to whom even this concept would seem like, or seems like, ancient history. Well, 50 years is is a long time, but given, you know, like you think about, like, the woman's vote, that took, you know, that started in the early, you know, 1900s, um, and it took almost, I think it was something like 60 years to get to the, the for women to vote, so these changes take a long time, um, but relatively speaking, it's pretty amazing to think that in my own lifetime, I was arrested for being gay in the early 70s. To think that now, I, you know, I just received an honorary degree from uh, the local college over here. 
um, an honorary doctorate degree. And so that span of being a from criminal to being an honorary doctor is pretty uh, pretty short when I think about it. Um, but yet, it it happens so dramatically that a lot of younger people just don't realize what it was like before and what it is that they are what shoulders they are standing on so to speak or what what has allowed them to do things that others couldn't do uh and not even think about it i mean you know the idea that you wouldn't be able to be a teacher if you wanted to be a teacher uh was very you know i don't think people think about that you know you can't imagine and not doing these things because you're gay, uh, you know, whether you, you could be a police officer or you couldn't be a police officer, you couldn't be in the military, you couldn't do any of these things without the changes that took place. So a lot of people just don't realize that <laughs> whatever you wanted to do, you most likely couldn't do it. You could be a hairdresser or you could be in the closet and hiding and uh, maybe getting a job, but the truth is, you you know, you couldn't be a politician. You couldn't be a, you know, we now have a gay senator. We have a couple of gay. We have gay governors, and the governor of Colorado is gay. Nobody even knows who he is uh, anywhere else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, you know what I mean. I mean, it's just like, but but you'd never would have had that. In 1970, the idea that a that a gay person could be open and be governor of Colorado was impossible. You couldn't think. You couldn't get married. You couldn't do any of these things that people now take for granted or are still doing. Uh, the reality is that those those were hard struggles. Those weren't easy things to do. There were a lot of people who had to be out in the streets and fighting, and many people lost their jobs and. Uh, and so that history is filled with great pioneers and great, you know, I think of Frank Kameny, the one of the first gay men who uh, who fought the U.S. government when he was fired because he was a geologist, a scientist. He was fired for being gay. And he kept fighting and fighting and fighting, but he never won, really. He, he did not win. He never got his job back. But it was really nice a few years ago to see President Obama bringing him to the White House and apologizing for uh, uh, firing him uh, in the White House and making that proclamation. So Frank, you know, finally got his ability to at least have the government recognize that he was in the right and the, the government was in the wrong. But that was quite a struggle. I mean... Frank lost his job. He, you know, had to survive somehow, and it was very difficult for him. Um, but yet he continued and persisted and fought and was one of the organizers of some of our first gay demonstrations that took place around uh, America in in Washington. And, um, you know, those early picket signs, I don't know, we have them before Stonewall. There's Frank, you know. And so without his job, but there he is on the picket line. So a lot of people had to go out and, and, and lose jobs and but fight. And it, it is that fighting that that um, has made the big difference for people. I mean, me, myself, when I was arrested, I had to 
take my case and work with the ACLU and fight it all the way to the Massachusetts Supreme Court. And we changed the laws there. But, but you know, it wasn't real easy. And it was kind of difficult. I mean, you know, I was in news director at WBCN. It was, it was difficult. Luckily, where I was working, they didn't fire me. So in 34 states in America, you still can be fired for being gay. So it's not that everything is done completely. I mean, there's a lot of work still ahead. What was the actual charge when you were arrested? Oh, trying to, uh, I forget, uh, lascivious and, I think, lascivious and uh, trying to commit an unnatural act. Ah, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was the vice squad, you know, yeah. they used to arrest people. And um, we got rid of the vice squad through the, the fight in the Supreme Court. They were just... You know, the, the, finally, the Supreme Court of Massachusetts said this is ridiculous. Well, one of the great ironies of the Stonewall Inn, if you go through the history of it, as I understand it, is the Stonewall Inn was actually owned by the Mafia. Oh, most of the bars in New York were, the gay bars and the lesbian bars were all Mafia-owned. Uh, in some strange way, <laughs> we can thank the mafia for. Ha- I mean, because they were important for bringing gay people together. Let's face it. I mean, uh, there were a lot of private parties, to be honest with you, all over the country where you know gay people would go to people's homes and stuff like that. Um, not so much organizing, but parties. Uh, then slowly but surely organizing. But the the bar scene was uh, pretty um, pretty much run by the mafia who would pay off the police and what happened at stonewall is that they had forgotten to do the payoff that week so the police just you know when you forgot your payoff they would raid basically stuff like that i mean it was you know in any given time you could be raided. there were a lot of raids at gay bars when the mafia didn't pay off the police that week pretty incredible situation um john's well, uh, uh, Sometimes it was just cleaning up because it was election time too, you know, like <laughs> <laughs> we used to, they used to, you know, uh, gay people, gay men mostly, um, used to go to the parks and meet others, you know, because mm. there weren't very many places to meet people to meet, you know, rest regular society where meeting people at bars and other places like that. And at work, you could meet someone and, Whatever, whatever the rules were, they weren't. Those rules weren't in for gay and lesbian people. So uh, they would, but the, but if it was election time, it was very difficult to go to the parks because that's when the police would be cleaning up the parks. So it it was very kind of interesting life. You had to, you know, if you were in the know, you knew what the police were up to and. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the fightbacks were really amazing. I mean, it was pretty high-energy uh, fights that took place around the Stonewall. These were not, this was not just, you know, a few people being upset and screaming. These were riots, and a lot of people involved, over a 1,000 people of the, uh, on the second night. And, and third night, uh, a lot of people came out to show their anger 
Uh, and, and, uh, John, hold, so, hold, hold that thought. We're going to take a pause here and uh, oh. come back, talk more with you. Uh, we're talking with John Scagliotti on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. John Scagliotti is talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning after our 8 o'clock update. Rick Wolf has the sports edge. Sweeney Murdy is along at 9 this morning here on the fan. John is a producer and director. He's been talking with us about some of the work that has gone into the documentaries about LGBT issues, including um, before Stonewall, after Stonewall, talking with him on World Pride Day. And before we paused for our update and messages, you were talking about um, actually, I guess, what what it was like um, back in 1969 when the riots occurred after the raid at um, the Stonewall Inn. And the, I guess, the intensity that, that people felt who were in the crowd, is that where you were with the discussion? Well, yes, I was. And, and you know, it's kind of interesting because um, they turned the area, which you, you can hardly get there today because there's so many people around Sheridan uh, Square. Uh, the whole area and all the streets uh, in the area where all the rioting took place and fights took place with the police and all that, that was all included in the National Monument. I thought that was very good. It was more like a Civil War monument, you know, it it kind of opened up the area to the idea that it wasn't just the Stonewall Inn. The uh, the riot, you know, very little happened in the Stonewall Inn. What originally happened was that the police sort of locked themselves down that first night inside the Stonewall Inn because the people outside <laughs> had gathered and wouldn't let them out and so that's when they brought the tactical police and the the guys with the helmets and the batons to sort of free the other police who were doing the raid in the stonewall well anyway all heck uh, broke broke out and uh, so the riot continued all around the area and it was really fascinating that the um the uh People who created National Monument actually recognized the number of streets around Sheridan as part of the National Monument. Uh, and uh, the Park Service actually tells stories of what happened on this street or that street. So it's a fascinating little sense of history. But it was it was a riot. It wasn't. Uh, it, it, it was a lot of anger and frustration at the way. Uh, LGBT people were being treated uh, in America. And uh, it, it was just like, we've had enough of it. We're not going to take it anymore and uh, get used to it. Here we are. And that was a pretty big change for people, for gay people to do. I mean, it was, you know, the idea that you would fight was pretty, pretty rare at the time. I mean, we had had a few demonstrations earlier and people, you know, out there with placards and all that. But the idea of fighting back the system and taking to the streets and became a uh, an important part of strategy for the LGBT community uh, within the 70s and uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, uh, 
you know, we can think of ACT UP as uh, another element of those early riots and early civil disobedience and street work. Uh, ACT UP took that on in 86, 87, 88 really changed the way uh, medical practice is happening in America. It was an amazing, amazing uh, experience for uh, mostly gay people who were in ACT UP uh, and, and continuing the, those tactics of uh, being in the street, doing civil disobedience, and uh, n- not allowing the system to run over us. And so that that was pretty exciting. New way to see the world. What's your reaction to the apology that came forth earlier this month from the commissioner of New York City Police Department for the police, um, police action during the Stonewall? I, I, I appreciate uh, the fact that they are willing to apologize. I think... Um, Were you surprised you know, that, that that happened? I, I think... Well, I... I think a lot more needs to be done. We have a lot of young people who are still committing suicide or in pretty bad shape. I think the uh, I would like to see more resources by the by the state, whether it's the police forces or whatever, going into especially our youth um, and 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 developing systems that uh, you know. Um, help them. A lot of gay people are still homeless uh, in, in, in the big cities. So there's a lot of work to be done, especially with the youth, that I would like to see these apologies be turned into an increase of resources for especially young people uh, who are gay and uh, lesbian and transgender. Um, I, you know, something like a hundred transgender people have been killed uh, Every year in the last few years, murdered uh, on on streets, and a lot of gay bashing still going on. So um, apologies are good, but I think more resources need to be put in to protect uh, gay and lesbian and transgender people. And uh, it doesn't help when the president of the United States throws a ban on transgender people in the military. Um, you know, this is not. This is not good, but uh, but you know those struggles are really important, and I think what the apology does in some ways is it reflects the fact that more needs to be done. And so, you know, if it takes fifty years to apologize of what happened, uh, what the police did in uh, in raiding gay bars, um, if you know, we need to understand why. Uh, they are apologizing, and what they can do about the future. And I think that's important, too. The re-release of the um, the Before Stonewall, um, what has that meant for you and your co-collaborators on this event? Well, it's important. You know, one of the things that I feel, you know, though I been around for a long time, I realized in my role, I mean, most of my work has been creating these historical films. I've just released another film about the real early days, the ancient times where gay and lesbian people 
were uh, involved in Greece and in uh, Japan, all over the world. Uh, and, and people forget that our history goes way back, you know, 2,000, 3,000 years. I, you know, was uh, searching through and uh, all over the world. And, it, you know, so this film called Before Homosexuals goes back even earlier than uh, the Stone Before Stonewall, which was mostly about the 30s and 40s. This goes back to, you know, like I said, the ancient Greeks. But um, one of the things that I think is really important is that young people, whether they're straight or gay, are really excited. You know, I've done a lot of screenings around the country with uh, my films, and I'm always amazed at how young people really are fascinated by this history. And you, you need to understand in America, gay and lesbian history, which is an important, amazing thing of what we w were able to accomplish uh, within just the 50 years now, is not taught in any schools, is not, you know, I think only in New Jersey and one other place, maybe in San Francisco, where high school teaches about some of these great gay pioneers like Barbara Giddings and Frank Kameny and Audre Lorde, all these amazing people who did this early work. So what's nice about it is that it keeps these films alive. So that's what I appreciate the re-release. You know, I get a chance to talk about it and, and more people get to see these films and get to see our history. And uh, it's really important for young people to know about their history and to know who these people were. And with it, we need to continue putting pressure on institutions like high schools to begin teaching gay and lesbian history, to bring in these films and bring in other, uh, there are now, you know, 500 gay and lesbian history books that came to be um, in the last 50 years. There, you know, all that material needs to be taken in to the institutions, especially educational institutions, so that people can um, see that history. So to me, this is just a, an, an indicator of being able to keep our history alive and maybe meet some, you know, superintendent at, at a, <laughs> of a, a school district that says, you know, you're right, you know, they should be teaching um, gay and lesbian history uh, at our high school. So, you know, those kinds of things are what we're doing now with our history, which is trying to get it involved more to the institutions, the educational institutions around um, uh, America, around the world, so that people know know this important history. Mm. You know, Stonewall itself, it's kind of nice because a lot of people are now finding out for the first time what Stonewall is. But we need to make sure that this material and this information is provided to people all over the all over the world. And uh, this helps by re-releasing a film. It gives uh, the people pause, and they say, "Oh, well, there is a history, and they need to uh, they need to find out more about it." And so that's pretty exciting. What has been the reaction? Have you had the opportunity to show this 
in areas outside this country? Yes. Uh, we've been in many festivals around the world. And uh, in fact, I did a film called Dangerous Living, which talks about activists and organizers in uh, mostly the developing world, like the Philippines and even in uh, some of the places in the mid Mideast. It was kind of scary film to make. But um, a lot of people in those countries, you know, are going through some of the early things that we went through in the, you know, just 20 years ago. It wasn't so wonderful for young gay people. I mean, it's not terrific now, but, it, you know, it's much better. But 20 years ago, um, a lot of gay people in high school and places like that were afraid to, you know, come out. And so uh, their families uh, would still give them a hard time. We were just starting a thing called P-Flag Parents and Families uh, Support Systems for Younger People. So a lot of that is beginning to happen around the world. And I can't tell you how many gay and lesbian film festivals are happening around the world. And so that is the area in which, you know, I have a connection to people around the world is, is through these festivals. And a lot of people come to the festivals. They're very important, you know, whether it's in Lisbon, Portugal, or or in uh, uh, Manila, in, in the Philippines. They are now taking films like Before Stonewall and After Stonewall and relating to them not so much about the American experience, but the experience that they are going through right now uh, because they are in the, more into the earlier periods of change uh, you know, in dealing with their institutions uh, because they're going through the same thing we had to go through. So that that's kind of fascinating and, and interesting to talk to gay and lesbian activists uh, in in these countries. Mm. John Scagliotti is talking with us on our program on the fan. After our 8 o'clock update, Rick Wolf is along with the Sports Edge program. Sweeney Murdy is along at 9 this morning. And we've got baseball on the fan this morning, too, coming our way from London, England. John is uh, talking with us um, and has been this hour of our program as a director and producer. He's worked on documentaries about LGBT issues, including Before Stonewall and After Stonewall. And uh, we're also talking because there's a um, re-release of uh, the uh, documentary Before Stonewall, The Making of a Gay and Lesbian Community. Um, and he's shared issues with us, um, shared some thoughts with us as well in our discussion. I think it's an appropriate one, especially as um, the World Pride March takes place um, later today here in Manhattan. And literally at least a million people will be on hand to uh, watch that. I think there's something like 150,000 people who are participants uh, in the march also. Um, it's one of those truly New York City events, but it also has a worldwide flavor to it, literally. John, thank you very much for uh, joining us on our program and sharing these insights with us today. Certainly, good, Well, it was good a luck. real pleasure. Good luck. And thank you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine to be able to talk about these important issues on this very important day. Um, so pretty incredible. I uh, 
you know, mazel tov to New York City for hosting this World Pride. Um, I know it's quite, a, <laughs> I'm sure the city seems <laughs> like it's been tossed upside down, but <laughs> it's quite a, it's quite a day. Uh, New York can handle it. They're used, used yeah. to, used to, they, they used to big things. <laughs> they can. Thank you very much, John. You take care okay. now. Okay. Right. Thank you very much, Bob. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Well, as I mentioned, after our top of the hour update, Mr. Wolf has that Sports Edge program. And Sweeney Murdy by, dare I say, would it be wrong of me to say he'll be, uh, should I use those words, talking baseball? Whoops. At nine? That means you know who's not here, huh? Hmm. I gotta look into that. And, of course, baseball on the fan at 10 this morning. Pete's got our top-of-the-hour update up next. We'll see you next Sunday morning. You know where. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.